So tonight I'd like to speak on the spirit of questioning. The spirit of questioning. interesting, one of the things I do now before I give a talk is to check out if I'm carrying any attitude or anything into the talk from the day. From I question that. And do I need to bring that to the Dharma? Does that need to be an overlay on the experience of speaking dharmically? Know what is going on in each one of us as we listen to the Dharma. Do we listen to it through the filters of a disappointing sitting? The spirit of questioning is so important to me. And I hope that you gain some insight into how it could perhaps be helpful in your practice. And I also want to start by acknowledging and trying to fold it into the two previous talks, Guy's on absolute and conventional dharma and Carol's on anatta, because I think it, it works very nicely in relationship to those other two talks. Carol said something last night about shattering our world, shattering our world's view. Shattering our world's view. And Guy spoke, I believe, about, or maybe it was Carol, the cling, non-clinging, non-clinging. So how is it that we get to or from a place in which it seems like a plethora of concepts and abstractions fill our life. Sitting down, just everything seems to mirror itself in some kind of net of a cocoon of conceptualization. And I seem, the sense of me seems to be very much a part of that whole sense of cocoonness. In fact, feeding upon the concepts and ideas I have within it. How, how, how is it that I could possibly break out of that? Concept? Could I think myself out of it? Can I conceptualize myself out of it? Can I break the bonds of concept by using the strategies of the mind? Is that a possibility? Is there a potential there? Or, how about holding a question? Now feel it with me tonight as we speak about questioning. What happens when you hold a question and you don't know the answer? And you aren't looking for the answer as a confirmation or a solution to the puzzle of the question. See, it's a very uncomfortable feeling to me. I'm much more comfortable 
confirming the answer. Then I have some empowerment. Then I can, you raise your hand, I can answer it. Oh yeah, well, here's the answer to that. But what about holding the question? Because when you question, when you hold the question, you cling to not. When you hold a question genuinely, where is their abstraction? You're not trying to think the answer. Thinking the answer is counterproductive to holding the question. We cannot dovetail the conventional and the ultimate truths together. There is no meeting ground, not from the relative perspective. It requires total surrender of the conceptual world, of the conceptual world. That is the world of our ideas about it and me. There's no dovetail. There's no juncture point except the ending of one. So when I talk tonight about the spirit of questioning, I am moving us in the direction of wonderment. Of wonderment. Because when we convert life into a question, we keep it a verb and not a noun. A single fixation of concept, we have created the nounness of the world. Solid, secure, permanency. And what Dharma practice is about is moving all those nouns back to verbs. Unfixing life. So the art of questioning, the spirit of questioning to me, is a deep and important aspect of how to do that. And I think it's an extremely important for lay practitioners because it doesn't require quite the same environment of a retreat in order to perform, in order to use that methodology. And we'll talk about that in in the talk. But just to give you a sense of how important it is within the Buddhist teaching, It can be, I love the interpretation of the fourth foundation of mindfulness as the investigation of the dharmas, is the questioning of life. What is this? And it can also be seen and is one of the factors of awakening in the Buddhist tradition. 
investigation. Going wherever there is a fixation, wherever there is a consolidation, wherever there is a a permanency. So, what is this art of questioning? So I'd like to explore it as its functionality. There's five things, five things, five aspects of it that I'd like to talk about tonight, and I'm sure there are many, many more aspects of it than that, but What is the first aspect? The first questioning empowers us to look critically at what we have been told. No longer looking towards our teachers for confirmation of my experience. Now it's interesting, I was reading something that one of the, Reb Anderson, I um, senior teacher for the San Francisco Zen Center, said that when we begin our meditation practice, we loan away, we loan, we are loaning our empowerment, loaning our authority to the teacher, to the retreat. And it's inevitable, I think, that we each do that in order for us to be able to take in what the importance of the teaching, we have to suspend our judgments and criticize We have to suspend our questioning because our questioning at that point comes from our opinions about things. It's not true questioning. And so we loan away our authority. We suspend it in order to let the teaching in. But then we have to re-own it to make the teaching our own. We have to re-empower ourselves. In one of the most quoted suttas by the Buddha, the Kalama Sutta, this is what he says. Now, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by tradition, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourself that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. Now, each of us have personal takes on suttas, how we interpret things like that. But for me, what he's doing is a radical lion's roar. Buddhism without beliefs. He's even pulling the rug out from under himself. He's saying this practice, to me, is only as good as it integrates into the actual living truth of it. Not as long as it says as a substantial belief system. Not as something to reference, but something to be. And it's a call to keep Buddhism alive, to keep it active, to keep it moving, to keep it growing within the life of each one of us. To me, this is the refuge that I take when I take refuge in the Buddha.
Now, when I started my Dharma practice, as these two can testify, I was full of questions. And I just couldn't ask enough questions. Every time there was anything that I felt at least a little bit irritating about or a little bit, I'd pop my hand up. And I didn't care whether I made the stupidest. In fact, somebody told me once that I asked all the stupid questions she was afraid to ask. (laughs) (laughs) And my hand stayed up continuously. And I said, the only thing I could do to satisfy this craving in my heart. And I thought that the way to do that was to constantly bombard it with explanations. Because that's the only thing I knew about questioning, was to satisfy the mind's curiosity, was to try to get more and more answers for it. But what it did do for me is that (laughs) I had to give up any image I might have of being intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) Now most of us question from our conditioning, just like I was. We think, for instance, I don't like something. I don't like authority, so I question authority. I question authority. I'm going to question authority because I don't like it. And I'm going to, right? Right? So we question usually from our aversion. And a question is full of a kind of stance we take to put that thing down so that I can have some empowerment or feel my empowerment. And so our questionings really are more conditional than heartfelt. It's interesting that we'll question authority, but we won't question the person who is questioning authority. We won't question who it is that's questioning. That takes a different level, a different stance, not one of anti-authority, but one of looking at the very stance of life itself. We look, when we ask those questions, we're looking at our edge, our boundaries, those things that we feel sacred about ourselves. Not trust trying to substantiate an anti-authority stance, but looking, and each one of us, I mean, just think for a minute. Inside, where is the sacred areas where you will not let any light enter? Where are those areas intrapersonally, in relationship, in your sexuality, in spirituality, those places that hold such superstition, such belief, such conceptualization that the Dharma can't flow, can't move, can't enter, light can't come in, because it's all noun. It's all me. 
one of those areas for me was in terms of my adherence to effort and the path as a student of Buddhism. I was diligent. I was very diligent. Sitting, walking, you know, short lunches, never giving myself time off because I didn't deserve time off. So after about four years of that, we were doing a month-long retreat in England. Actually, the three of us were there. And the teacher at that time pulled me aside and he said, Rodney, I don't want you to try anymore. (laughs) And I said to him, well, I feel like I've paddled out into the middle of a lake and now you're asking me to throw in the oars. And he said, well, that's a very nice analogy. but I don't want you to try anymore. <laughs> and I was lost. And that was right in the middle of a month-long retreat, and I had no, I had nothing. It was a sacred thing. It was the only thing I had. It was my sacred. And for me to question my effort was to take away my whole intentionality, my whole construct, a construct around what and how and when and who was going to do this thing. It was sacred to me, and it put me in a, di- in a it put me in a dizzy. In fact, I then went to Burma, and every day this is karma. Every day I would go to the teacher, and every day he would say to me after the ten minute interview, "Please try harder." <laughs> Five months. And it broke me. It broke me. It just, it broke, it just broke me. Not so that I was a weeping, sobbing, I mean, not that kind of thing, but just, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. I can't do this. And then I lived by questioning from then on because my methods have, had changed. Before it was me and my will, and then there was nothing left. So I had to question. I then went to, just to finish the story, I then went to Thailand. And I said to myself, okay, I've had over four years of people telling me what the Dharma is. Now I don't care anymore. I don't care whether I go one step further, but I am not going to have anyone tell me anything. I was reowning my power at this point. I loaned it away, and now I was reowning it. I wasn't following what other people were telling me to do, although it was very useful for a long period of time to do that, so I don't want to take that strategy away prior to its usefulness. But at some point, it has to come back into us. And I said, okay, what have I been told? Let me look and see whether this is true for me. Everything. Why does awareness have to be non-judgmental? 
Why does it have to be non-judgmental? Why can't I judge? I feel full of judgment. Why can't I judge it? See, I, I build it up from the ground up, just like that. I took it apart, everything, block, 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 block. And you do this through questioning. You do this through your heart, my heart, desperately yearning for something. For Because the yearning didn't go away just because the raft was broken. Just because the effort was taken away, the yearning didn't go away. And the yearning then formed itself into questions. And they weren't new forms of effort. They were questions of the heart, not questions of the mind any longer, which is where I started my practice, but questions of the heart. I want to know, and it was without the I. The heart wants to know. The heart wants to know. But I would have never gotten to the place if I had left anything superstitious left behind, anything that I couldn't touch. When effort was taken away with me, the closet was clean. That was it. I had nothing. And you turn that nothingness back onto Buddhism, and it lights up. It's a flamed. Which brings to the second reason that we question, to make the practice our own. Not what we have been told, but what we know. Every place we are fixed and limited, every place, we have to go into that, into our psyche that holds those dark, shadowy things. Okay, let's go. The one aspect that I knew I needed to complete my journey, because there was so much fear around it, completing it meaning allowing the questions their full response without any kind of hedging, was in terms of death and dying. There There was just this edge to me around that subject. So, okay, hospice work for 16 years. Well, that's it. The light has to come into this one too. And what I'm trying to show is that the heart knows its path. It knows its way. The camel knows its way. It knows how to drink. It knows how to find the water. We don't have to preconceive it. We don't have to have an idea of how to question. We question wherever we're, wherever we're fixed. And then there's an enormous sense of confidence that comes with that and energy and interest. Because when the heart wants to know and it has a fixation, there is nothing more interesting than to turn your question upon that fixation. That's joyful. I mean, why would anyone want to do this very hard work? Because at some point, it becomes joyful. 
Why does it become joyful? Because it's no longer personalized. The heart just doesn't personalize it anymore. It's just seen as a block. Okay, let's look at this thing. And many of you in interview come in and you're reluctant to talk about what's going on personally because you, and rightfully so, have only lived with the personal. And you think, oh, I don't know if I should tell the teacher that because what will he or she think of me if I... But, you know, we're not thinking anything. Because we, for the most part, don't see it that way. And for you to be able to say it to someone who does, has a little less, person, less personal take on it can be very freeing in the eyes. When you say something, you look in the eyes of the other person to see if they're flinching, like you're flinching inside, and they're not. And you go, whoa, maybe this isn't that bad. And it's a spontaneous Questions of the heart. The gateway to the heart. The gateway to the heart. And we begin to see wherever we believe, we don't know for ourselves. Isn't that interesting? The Buddha said, however you can conceive of something, the truth is other than that. Whatever you believe, however you fix your mind, because it's fi- the fixation is a concept, the ultimate truth is other than that. So you don't believe in your beliefs. There are things that come in the mind, and of course you have your opinions and all that, but they're not. My brother is a very fundamental Christian. And he always wants, he's, he's, he thinks I'm going to go to hell. And, and bless his heart, he wants to help me. Because if I thought somebody was going to hell, I'd want to help them too. <laughs> and he'll whip out his Bible, and he'll show me passage after passage of how, you know, if I keep doing what I'm doing, well, and I keep, I, I thank him, you know, I well, thank you, because he's concerned, he's caring. And I just, I just, there's nothing you can say. Nothing you can say. At one point he was living with his woman friend, uh, and they're not married, and he was just going through... Um, enormous shame and guilt because you, you don't do that in fundamental Christianity, live with somebody out of wedlock. And I said to him, I said, Woody, don't, you have told me and shown me that God is love. Do you think the coming together of love in any way defaces God? How could that be? And for a moment, just for a moment, you could see this, and then right before the Bible came back in, <laughs> you could just see you could see this
You see, no, nothing. Okay, every nothing's sacred here. Nothing. Sa- then that's sacred. When nothing is sacred, everything is sacred. That's the sacred. When there's one thing that's sacred in your mind, then everything is defiled. Do you see what I mean? So questioning keeps everything flowing, keeps the fixation thawed, keeps everywhere where we're where we've solidified ourselves out, it keeps it moving, it keeps it a verb, it keeps it, it keeps it flowing, it keeps it alive, alive. When something's a noun, it's dead. How could it not be? How could it be alive? It's dead. It's a noun. Try to have a relationship with this. It's a noun. The third reason, I'm on page two of page six and I only have 15 more minutes. (laughs) 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 And I promised Guy I'd have us out of here in 45 minutes, so we'll... (laughs) The third reason is that questioning shows us our pattern of dependency. Krishnamurti, who was certainly one of my teachers, said, the mind that conforms, just, the mind that conforms can never be in a state of discovery. The mind that conforms can never be in the state of discovery. So questioning is a confrontation with conformity. There's a crisis that develops when you ask yourself a question. You stay in a moment. You stay in crisis when you ask yourself questions, because. And the only thing that saves you is that your heart's yearning. To understand is greater than your mind's need to know. That's the only thing that saves us. A crisis develops. A natural crisis develops between the security of what I know and the insecurity of the question. And we keep bringing that question. Okay, that doesn't matter. Okay. And you, and you feel confused in the question, and you feel disoriented. And it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not pleasant. It's taking everything and shaking it. We usually question from a preconceived notion of what we will find, but when we question from the heart, we have no notion of all at all of where, and no guarantees of where that will go. No notion of where it's going, and no guarantees of where it's going to go. It's like when you listen to someone. Sometimes when you listen, you screen out everything you don't want to hear, and you, what you end up hearing from the person is what you already know. My wife, who is also a Dharma student, 
not of mine, but a student. And she was, I came in the kitchen and she was re- re- listening to Rush Limbaugh on the, on the, <laughs> now he's a very concerned, he doesn't fit mine and I knew my wife's point of view. And I was, I said, why are you listening to that stuff? You know, like, get that, turn that stuff off. And she said, because I want to understand his point of view. See, who, now who's the Dharma teacher there? <laughs> Letting that in, not screening out only what you want to get in, only what you feel safe to get in, only what you already know, which is, right? That's how we, que- we can question from that. Hoping to rediscover or re-solidify the noun. If I question from what I already know, then the confirmation is to re-solidify my knowing. The me, the conceptualization, the conventional, but never the absolute. Never the absolute. From that perspective, listening is confirming what we already know rather than being available to anything new. We listen the world and we hear our own voice, we view the world and we see our own reflection. Is it any wonder that the net of Indra's net, the net of our conceptualization is so tight? Questioning is a method of salvation from that net. And we can't arrest the questioning at every level. We have to just let it keep going. And it stops at the most painful areas of our life. Of course. And we can cash in the chips at that point. So that's it. That's it. No, no, I'm not going there. Don't, I'm not going there. Many times I've done that. And then I sit down there and then I start going there. Because what else can you do? The fourth reason, with 10 minutes left, (laughs) questioning. It focuses the mind with interest and opens the heart. It focuses the mind. You see, you don't have to have the breath. You hold a question that's interesting to you. And each one of us have that question. Ooh. And you don't cash in your chips because when you do that, you've just solidified the noun. And if you do, you know you do. Okay, I can't go any further right now. This, I need to back off. Fine, no problem with that. Just know you're doing it. And even, then the knowing you're doing that keeps it in movement. I mean, the Buddha... He journeys out of his castle, age 28, journeys out of the castle, and he looks at this thing, a corpse, and he goes, what's that? What is that? And he goes headlong into that question. He says, I'm not going back in there. That doesn't have that in there. The hell, I'm shutting the door on that. I'm going this way. Headlong, right out. I'm going this way. 
the question was so important to him. And it doesn't make any difference whether it's nonsensical, like a Japanese koan, or it's a question very personal. It doesn't matter. It has to be from the heart, that's all. And there has to be a hunger for mystery. The answer closes the heart. The answer reconfirms the me. Oh, I've got the answer. Now I know that. I know that. The question keeps the heart open. So this, the resolution is not for the answer. It's to perpetuate the question. I think that, that's so interesting to me because you can, we do just the opposite. Our institutions, our cathedrals are our universities where they have the answers because we're a mind-driven world. Not a heart-driven world. We're a mind-driven world. So answering the questions satisfy the mind, but it closes the heart. Heart closes down. The answer is known. There's nothing vibrant, new. There's no wonder. Tony Packer said it this way, which brings me to the fifth The means of questioning are the ends we seek. And she said, real questioning has no method, no knowing, just wondering freely, vulnerably. What is it that is actually happening inside and out? Not the word, not the idea of it, not the reaction to it, but the simple fact of the wonder. Using questioning is a method to come to the questioning of the wonder. We can use very, well, the method of questioning. Who am I? What is this? What's going on here? who Who is this? It's a method. But it brings us into the wonder of the space in which life is not yet formed. Before the Big Bang. We think a question should take us past illusion to the answer, but a real question brings up every illusion. And so answering the question, yes or no, confirms me. So I just keep it open. And in the silence, the answer is sometimes known. The answer gets, okay, I'm not this or that. Okay, I see that. So then the questioning leads to wakefulness, not righteousness. Oh, and then we keep Buddhism alive. It was about one thing and one thing only. He said, this aliveness, Wakefulness. And to open question, to open existence to the questioning of it. 
to make existence into a question. When we stop fleeing birth and death, life opens. Existence reveals itself as a question. We start living the mystery of that. Do we pull out into painful areas? It's okay if we do. In the own, the heart has its own timing, even within the timeless. So we may want to pull out. We may want to take a breather. It's too much. I have to just, okay. So that's skillful avoidance. But it's the unformed mind of the question. The unformed. The unformed is another description of the ultimate, the unformed. We can never be safe in our questioning. Never safe. In those moments of being unsafe, like when we're out of control, when circumstances move in such a direction that we feel out of control, right there, that's the unformed before we come back in to solidify life, there's a sense, the moment when you're with somebody and you don't know them very well and you don't have anything to say, that moment of, right there, the one that we try to get over so quick. Isn't the moon pretty tonight? The moment of confusion where, or, or disorientation. How can we stay? Can we stay there? Can we stay with the not knowing? Can we stay with the uncertainty? You, you go to the deathbed of somebody. You sit by the deathbed, somebody who's dying. And they're looking at you, and they don't want answers to their situation. They want somebody to go with them, to move with them, to be with them in their not knowing. And so you sit there and, they, and, you, and you want to give, them, you'll be okay. I've read that death is safe. I, <laughs> or can we sit there by the bed heart to heart. You know where you, you know what's going to be happening? No. I've seen lots of people die, but I, I know nothing about really what that moment is. You think I'll be afraid? I don't know. I feel okay now. So do I. I just have to wait and see, huh? Yep. Right there. We can never be safe in our questioning. Inside I'm screaming. We 
confused, out of control. Not a thing I can do, completely impotent. My own internal struggles. Maybe there's more I need to know about this. No, there's not more. I need to know less. My need to know more is my struggle to make death a noun. What if we lived without any conflict at all? What if living without conflict was our highest priority? Then we would have to give up knowing more because knowing more is itself a struggle. To know more, to know more. is itself a conflict, is itself a struggle. And we don't apply struggle to end struggle. We apply a question to end struggle. What is this? Do we really need to know more? Or can we hold the question in stillness? In stillness. Right now, in stillness. Unformed. Stillness is not formed. All questions move towards stillness. Genuinely asked, heartfelt questions move towards the same resolution of stillness into stillness, merge into stillness. And it's there, unformed. That we meet death and life. Can we sit for a minute or two? as you sit, just feel the stillness. It's the elephant in the room. It's the thing no one wants to admit to. It's the end of questioning. And it's there. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.